0: in 2023 how the benefits leaders and priorities are changing and what it takes to win with Mike Payne. Mike is a digital health pioneer, having been Omada's first chief commercial officer back in 2013 and subsequently working and consulting for a wide variety of digital health companies during the last 10 years. Currently, Mike leads his own consulting practice with a focus on helping digital health CEOs and investors craft and execute robust go-to-market strategies and maximize enterprise value for growth or exit. First off, here's the format of this investor talk. We'll chat about the news for the first third, maybe 20 minutes or so. Then we'll talk about today's topic for another 30 minutes, and then we'll mix in questions from the audience. Um, You can ask questions in the room chat or through through the ask to be a caller button. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register an account on call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or on the call-in social podcasting app in the app store. Uh, the platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces. Um, once you've registered, you can use the text chat or you can press the call-in button to join the discussion. Welcome, Mike.
1: Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, that's great. And can can you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I guess what's relevant here. So um, Steve introduced me in terms of what I'm doing right now, my role at Omada um, back in the day. Um, I won't belabor my background. Largely, it's a combination of health research and business. Uh, I spent 10 years in biotech after my MBA and then switched over to digital health um, with Omada in 2013. And then since then, uh, have spent the last 10 years um, both with uh, as an employee and in a lot of cases advising and consulting for other digital health companies, as well as on the other side, if you want to call it that, uh, pharma companies um, and other potential acquirers or strategic partners of digital health companies. Um, definitely grateful to be on here and also grateful to have been a part of what I would consider kind of the founding generation of digital health entrepreneurs. Um, I feel like in the last 10 years, I've kind of seen what's worked. I've seen what hasn't. Um, you know, what's clear uh, is that many of the products and services are effective at improving health and quality of life and and most save money too, but most have not had the chance to demonstrate that at scale. Um, And I think that's, you know, due to a variety of of system level factors, um, in addition to, you know, some issues happening at the company level, but those system level factors include, um, but are not limited to uh, clinical licensure, reimbursement coding interoperability, um, payment models, so much more. Um, So in summary, we've got great digital health products. I think most people on this call probably believe that, Um, but we as a society, um, you know, haven't figured out how to, or have incentives aligned against scale delivery and payment uh, for those good products. Um, And what I would say is that, you know, 10 years ago in 2013, as uh, the first class of us were kind of envisioning what this would look like now in 2023, Um, We hope from an impact point of view that it would be millions of patients and probably tens of billions of dollars from a market size point of view, if not more. Um, And I think, unfortunately, at this point, uh, you can kind of replace the B with an M, right? We're probably at the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, um, uh, you know, uh, debating how you uh, count certain acquisitions, but um, it's not as big as we thought it would be. Um, And so I think we're at a point where um, we need people to think differently um, to work across silos, I think we need to solve some of these you know big system level issues from the top down to some degree instead of from the bottom up just from within a single company. Um, and that's what I've been focused on recently in my consulting and advising um, to CEOs, investors, and to some in some cases, the acquiring uh, company categories that I mentioned before. Um, trying to both um, figure out what the growth strategy and go-to-market strategies are, because that's been the big area um, from an obstacle point of view. Um, And then, to be honest, in some cases, um, helping investors and CEOs figure out how to get uh, acquired and and absorbed and, and get societal value and also financial value out of all the hard work they've done in the past several years. So thanks again for having me on. I'm excited about the discussion. Great, thank you. And yeah, I, I would point out, in addition, um, you know, I've, I've been, um,
0: you know, it, uh, also in the industry for a long time, and I think it hasn't had the impact we would have liked it to have so far. And a big part of that could be. Um, the regulation and also the fact that there's different actors who don't get along well. So the prescriber and, and is not the same as the user, is not the same as the payer, uh, is not the same as the regulator, and they don't get along. There's that. I, I'd say one unexpected boost, I think, was the pandemic because the pandemic caused, created pr- uh, provider behavior change, which is extremely difficult to get providers and their institutions to change their behavior, and also got patient behavior change. And so it got patients and providers to accept telehealth visits, for example. Now, that doesn't cover everything, but it does ensure that there's a sort of an electronic workflow driving the whole process. And then uh, real-life visits almost become secondary to having a digital front door and a digital workflow for the patient, because we went through a period of time when patients literally couldn't go into clinics, and so everything had to be online. So that's an interesting you know, uh, uh, silver lining to the cloud of the pandemic, I think. Um, Yeah. Well, good. So with that, we'll move on to macro outlook. Uh, So the macro outlook is increasingly important, unfortunately, to digital health innovators. um, And so we cover it more. Um, The first is that today the Fed had day two of its Open Markets Committee meeting um, and day two out of two. And as expected, uh, just at two o'clock today, Eastern time, uh, the Fed announced that it was raising rates uh, by 25 basis points. That was widely expected. And so that uh, didn't really have much of an effect. But I think the Nasdaq was down uh, you know, less than half a point uh, on the news. Um, and all in all, I think um, Uh, you know, that that this is a good outcome for innovators. What we And the the Fed also said some words like it did last time, that it's coming to the end of the period of rate rises and that this might be the last time it raises rates. Um, People are still interpreting what the Fed said this time. All in all, I think that's a good outcome because we have a, a situation where CEOs are swimming in the pool and investors are sitting on the bleachers, not jumping in the pool. When you ask them why, there's a bunch of reasons why, but one of the reasons is uncertainty. The Fed could, could raise rates, the NASDAQ could pull in a lot, uh, changing valuation levels. No one wants to get in today when the, Fed, when the Fed could raise rates, the NASDAQ pull in 30%, and valuations could tumble tomorrow. So uh, with, with the Fed signaling an end to rate raises, uh, this could resolve some of the uncertainty. This could be a catalyst that resolves uncertainty and allows VCs to sort of get back in the pool more. Um, and uh, in that sense, I think this this was good. It also, uh, further rate raises would be bad for innovators because high rates in general are bad for innovators. So Mike, I don't, I don't know what you think of today's announcement. Um.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, at a, at a macro level, Steve, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that um, I, I do think that the picture will get better from an investment point of view. And I, uh, you know, I agree with the, the concept that, you know, coming up in the next year or two, um, as things ease that some, you know, uh, health unicorns could head out to market. Um, so I think that's the, that's the positive side. Um, you know, I do think that it's not going to get back to kind of pre 2023 or 2022 kind of investment rates real soon. And so I think, you know, the, the, the premium on, you know, both having good products and good data, but also having, um, you know, better go to market strategies and capabilities. And, you know, in some cases, if you're raising uh, for a B or C or after um, actually having demonstration of revenue and scalable contract structure and things like that, I I think the burden on founders is going to be continued to be high uh, in that respect um, going back to what I said before, um, uh, briefly, you know, I do think that there are a lot of, um, companies at this point, um, and investors at this point that are, you know, looking at the fundraising environment and it's hard enough where at least as a backup, um, strategy, they are, you know, trying to figure out what, what an exit could look like, um, you know, an acquisition. Um, and I think that that is something we haven't, you know, faced for quite a while in digital health, um, And it's interesting because, you know, most founders and to some degree, a lot of the VCs in this space are not that familiar with um, sitting on the other side of the table in these acquiring company categories like pharma, med device, insurance, uh, health system, you know, big tech. Um, And it's a very complicated thing to figure out, like how these types of assets are actually going to be absorbed and valued highly because the go to market question has not been answered. Um, So I I see a lot of that happening in addition to, you know, good companies and good products starting to to gain funding. And I think the last thing I would say is, um, you know, it's going to be a while, I think, before there's whatever you want to call it, rational exuberance um, from an investment point of view in the space. And um, because I think that, you know, the next several uh, digital health, health tech companies that do go public, um, there will still be some skepticism about them, in part because of the, the Teladoc acquisition and then right down, or sorry, the Livongo acquisition and then write down by Teladoc, right? That that was not a, a fait accompli upon um, the public exit. And so I think folks are going to look for more evidence of a longer public runway. <laughs>
0: That's great. Thanks. So just covering some other macro issues. So, uh, you know, there continues to be a weak private investment environment for digital health. uh, And the NASDAQ for the last three months has been going largely sideways, a little up uh, for the last couple of months. Um, And uh, what we want to see is a lot of lift in the NASDAQ because digital health valuations in general track things like the NASDAQ. Um, uh, And um, uh, so for inflation, we still have an inflation environment that's that's Uh, It's too high, but at least it's not it's not compounding and increasing. Um, The IPO window remains closed. That's bad news. We'd like to see the IPO window open. That means that private investors can get returns um, and can be enthusiastic about investing in stages like CD cross and crossover. Um, uh, We're seeing signs of a potential opening that we're going to track here in the IPO window. With J&J, Kenview, they're the makers of Tylenol and uh, Band-Aid, being slated to go public, a spin out of J&J. Instacart announcing it'll go public. ARM, the UK chip manufacturer. These are all big companies. um, And what needs to happen, they may go public in the fall. The the dates are not certain. We'll keep tracking that. But what needs to happen is that that they need to IPO at a certain uh, offer price. Then they need to go up. And they need to stay up. <laughs> and if that happens, then in the fall, the IPO window for tech will be open. And that will then cause boardrooms for digital health unicorns and others to say, we can go public and for them to start the process. And so you could see their IPOs as soon as the spring would be early. That's a best case scenario and that's going to help you'll, you'll you'll see maybe higher multiples will be coincident with that there is a lot of buy side investor demand for ipos they're just waiting for a favorable environment but they tend to like the alpha they can get with ipos they're looking for more product um and um, so th- that's what we're looking for the first piece has fallen into place successfully i think which is the fed raising ba- raising rates 25 basis points and then signaling it's not going to raise rates much more that that resolves one of the major uncertainties for private investors. Um, we could be entering a recession. So um, commentator Jason Kalkanis says that we have entered a Fed caused recession. Um, Lawrence Summers, my, one of my favorite economists, says we're not in a recession, but there's a 70% chance we will go into a recession this year. Um, and Fidelity says that we're not in a recession. They're their chief economist, but that we're in the late stage of an expansionary period, expects we will go into a recession within a few quarters and expects it to be a shallow recession. So I'm on this case, I'm mostly following Fidelity. Um, and recessions for innovators are mostly bad because they cause the, the, the software budgets you sell into to go soft. That's why they're mostly bad. They're, they, they create harder times. But in this case, the the silver lining is that that's how you deal with inflation. Recessions are how you deal with inflation. Uh, a Recession is a real solution to the inflation problem. We want inflation to go from 5 or 6% to 2 or 3%. That could possibly happen with a, re- with a recession. Uh, uh, so, and and the, the prior raising of rates is what caused us to go into a recession and would cause the decrease in, in, in inflation. So that's, that's a, um, a summary of the macro outlook. Any other thoughts, Mike?
1: Um, I guess the only other thing that popped into my mind, Stephen, when you were talking about, is um, if it's true that the window, you know, for tech and health tech uh, from an IPO perspective, you know, opens sometime in the spring. I think the other thing for all of us to, you know, start tracking is the impact of the election next year's election um, on, uh, you know, and health policy from both sides or anticipated health policy from both sides. Um, and, you know, whether or not that'll be an accelerant or a deterrent um, to, you know, health tech in general. Mm-hmm. That's great. And,
0: you know, oftentimes in the in the presidential election cycle, uh, a, a coming election where an existing president is seeking re-election, that's coincident with a uh, fiscal stimulus and with and with monetary expansion as well. Um yeah. Uh, and, and that could get us out of a, a, a shallow recession. So next I'll touch on valuation levels. So interestingly, you know, I, I like to follow the SaaS Capital Index uh, and their latest numbers have come out. And they are saying that the median valuation levels for all public SaaS companies in the last month were on average uh, 6.5x uh, times forward revenue. That's the next 12 months revenue. Um and that's down from the March numbers of an average of 7.1x, um, and this is as compared to the long-term median over several years of about 8x. So we're down quite a bit from uh, from the long-term median of SAS of forward SaaS valuation levels. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm going to say I think that uh, SaaS company is pulling in. It was somewhat unexpected, but this is probably due to higher interest rates, expected rise in interest rates, inflation and recession fears uh, going into that. Um, High growth SaaS is still trading at eight to 12 times forward revenue. And this compares to the, the highs of 2021, those crazy times, when the median SAS was trading at 16 times and high growth was trading at 30 to 35 times. I don't think we're gonna see those those valuation levels again for a while. Um, the valuation environment is still risk off, meaning that investors like profitable companies, even at the expense of growth and don't like uh, 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 earnings negative companies, even if their top line growth rate is, is, is quite high, this is in the public environment. And that's trickled down to all, to all investors um, And then uh, also commentator, David Friedberg, he is claiming that 70% of companies that went public over the last three years are now trading below the cash that they raised. Um, And if you carry that analogy over to the, to tech companies that are at series C stage or later or digital health companies at series C stage or later, it implies that 70 plus percent of these companies um, have a valuation lower than their preference stack. So this is a big problem. This is an overhang problem uh, where uh, uh, there's expectations of stakeholders. The company's worth so much, but in reality, valuation levels have just come down a lot. Uh, And this can create problems of uh, that. Maybe the CEO wants to raise money. The board is not supportive of raising money because that would cause uh, the the valuation on paper to have to pull in Um, or where an outsider might be willing to acquire the company, but the Internal stakeholders of the company can't agree to be acquired for a comparatively low price today because they had their their stakes in at a much higher valuation level. So this is an, an overhang. Uh, and what uh, Friedberg is predicting is that this is going to lead to an, an effect that he calls the zombie corn effect, not the unicorn effect. But it, it is that. Um, uh, maybe there's a, a frothy market of AI startups in healthcare, which, which there is actually in, in healthcare and in every other B2B and B2C category. Um, and so very talented people uh, are going to say that their equity is locked up and stuck with no clear path forward in a unicorn. Um, and so then they leave and join and get a new, um, a, a new you know, piece of equity at, at reasonable levels um, with reasonable expectations built in at a new startup. So this could be a time of increased dynamism where established big funds say we're stuck when it comes to our C and later uh, stage companies, but we could do a lot of early stage investing where we're seeing a growing number of small funds doing happily doing a lot of early stage investing um, uh, and that some of the talent leaves the, uh, the unicorns and goes to those early stage companies. So I think that, I, I don't, so um, anyway, Mike, any thought on valuation levels and what what this uh, the environment this creates for companies, and, and also on the Friedberg zombie corn thesis?
1: Uh, I mean, nothing nothing um, too incrementally profound, Steve. I mean, it, it, I know that this uh, this show is called Investor Talk, but as I mentioned a couple times, you know, in this one it might uh, also appropriately be called Acquirer Talk. Um, because, you know, if Freeberg is right and that's, the, um, you know, that, those are the valuations relative to cafes. Um if I were, you know, running the show at some of the larger uh, acquiring category companies, uh, whether it's a Google or a, um, a United or, or what have you, um, I would be looking out there and, and uh, Seeing a lot of, you know, quote unquote, distressed assets with great technology and proven products with good clinical data um, and go on a bit of a shopping spree. Um, and I know we'll talk a bit about consolidation later, um, but uh, so it's not that what people want to hear necessarily, but it, it is cyclical and it seems to be uh, where we're at right now.
0: Great. So now we're moving on to just news from the past week. So uh, in, in general, we cover a lot of, of fun of uh, we queue in on a lot of fundraisers. Um, but once again, the fundraising environment continues to be very slow with more layoffs than than fundraises in the news. Um, and so at this point, I would also ask our audience, um, do you have any news? Feel free to comment in, in the room chat if there's any story you want us to cover. But the first one that I'll that I'll bring up is that First Republic was closed by regulators. So First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank before it were favorites of the innovation community. And people focus on like sweetheart mortgages they gave, but the reason they were favorites of the innovation community was that there's totally different ways you do due diligence on tech startups than on other companies. And tech startups tend to not have um, real assets the way other companies have them. And so uh, a and so that means they, they couldn't get com- corporate bank accounts, they couldn't get loans. Uh, and then along came Silicon Valley Bank as the pioneer, later First Republic, and they would go on other bases like um, are there established venture funds who are uh, promising to support this company? And that's not something that you would see in ordinary banking, but it is something that you would see with Silicon Valley Bank and, and First Republic, and so this allowed young innovative companies to 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 have a bank and to and sometimes to raise non-dilutive bank loan um, you know loans, uh, and uh, but it also caused them to require that those young companies put hundred percent of their of their cash with the bank, and that turned out to be a really bad idea. Um, but these were favorites of the innovation community, and it's bad news for the innovation community that First Republic which was going, which have been stumbling ever since the Silicon Valley bank crisis. Um, so, so it's bad news for the innovation community to have one of its preferred banks go under. And it won't. Maybe we won't see the same kind of services offered uh, to, that were very useful to startups. And it also means that the banking crisis isn't over. And, uh, and so, and what this is, is probably the U.S. financial system and the Fed are strong enough to, uh, backstop further banking problems, but when they do so, that is inflationary. That is an expansionary monetary policy to back uh, struggling banks, and that in turn is inflationary. And so this contributes to, uh, you know, it it is uh, it, cre- it it reduces uh, confidence in the U.S. banking system, which is bad. Even though I don't think it's going to be a giant crisis that, that affects all of us, and then it's also inflationary, which is bad. It contributes to other inflationary pressures. So, any thoughts on that, Mike?
1: Uh, general agreement um as a as a first republic customer uh a little bit sad uh and friend with some of the folks there but i agree with you on kind of the status and the health of the the sector
0: so um then uh and we have a question from dave in our audience discuss amazon's halo exit um uh so i'm actually not not sure uh uh, I'm, I'm a little stumped on that, uh, Mike. Do you have any, any
1: thoughts on the on the Halo on Amazon's Halo exit? Uh, I mean, I, I I do know that Amazon announced that they were going to ramp down the Halo program, which I think has been in place for like three years. I was not deeply familiar with all the um, the attributes of it, and especially not the the plans for it. Right? It had a it had a wearable, I believe, uh, if not more than one, um, and was focused on more of the what I would consider health and wellness side, as opposed to, you know, with their one medical acquisition. Um, and, and of course the uh, Amazon pharmacy, that's more on the, you know, medical side. Um, and I think, I don't know, I can think about it, Dave. I think that um, my, my point of view is that, you know, having kind of worked at the intersection to some degree of health and wellness, and then, you know, kind of classically considered medical care, Um, and trying, you know, in my roles, having tried to sell that towards employers and then to some degree towards insurers, um, there are various reasons, both, you know, from a payment model standpoint, um, a provider, uh, you know, connection standpoint, that those two things are so completely different. Consumer health and wellness versus anything that has a physician and a reimbursement code and a claim submission associated with it. Um, And so to some degree, my guess is, um, you know, the folks in Amazon um, are are thinking that they are doubling down on the, you know, the medical side uh, for the time being, and perhaps seeing how things play out in in terms of, um, let's call it consumer health data acquisition. Um, And obviously, you know, Apple continues to invest in that. And Amazon had said with Halo that they were going to potentially, you know, uh, have some level of integration with Apple, at least have apps and such. Um, so I, I think maybe they're taking a backseat for now and, and seeing how that plays out. Just, my, yeah, just, just, just
0: It's really hard to compete against Apple and here they're competing against Apple and Fitbit. And at the low end, you have Chinese manufacturers with, with $10 activity trackers. And so just a really hard space to, to play in. Um, and in general, I, I want big tech to play in the space and make acquisitions and have them be successful. And so for, There have been a number of times when big tech has bought something and it hasn't worked out. And each one of those kind of collectively hurts our sector because you want you want big tech to be excited and jump in and and pay rationally high prices and have it and have it be a winner anyway in the sector. And so it's, it's sad to see someone get burned and leave. Um, so, but, but Amazon actually has a big commitment overall still to healthcare and bought one medical and may find it better there. So other news, um, you know practice better a Canadian practice management platform for health and wellness practitioners, raised 27 million led by, by Austin Gideon at five Elms. Um, so here this is uh, in the practice management EMR space uh, and, uh, uh, and so, It'd be nice to say that this was some sort of, of return to normal for investors investing in digital health companies, but uh, but actually, so this is led by Five Elms is, is not particularly well known in the digital health space, and so this is kind of a, a one off. I, I don't think this this, is, this signals a trend of um, investors returning, um, and then uh, you will uh, a college student mental health company raised a 30 million dollar series a led by education growth partners so that's interesting because you have a a mental health company being backed by being where the round is led by an education venture fund not a digital health fund so both of these uh, investments are this is not a return to normal that we'd like to see of leading digital health funds being leaders in investing in digital health companies this is these are sort of uh, companies that are just doing their best to somehow put together a syndicate from investors they can get so any any thoughts on those two deals uh, Mike uh, no,
1: not at this time, I agree with your points of view on those so also kind body, which is a uh, uh,
0: a leader in in fertility in, in femtech and is a hybrid fertility and reproductive care company raised 20000000 million, I'm sorry, $25 million in funding from Morgan Health Ventures. Um, and uh, I think that was Cheryl Pegas there was the lead investor. Um, so this is interesting because this company has raised $315 million to date. So this is quite a large company. And here they are raising an, a small round at a late stage um, from Morgan Health Ventures. So interestingly, Morgan Health Ventures is actually a corporate venture fund of J.P. Morgan. Um, and it's the part of J.P. Morgan that's very active and interested in it, it, the employer paid for health sector. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is, this is very interesting. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of this. This is not a sign of a, a big series C or D or crossover round. This, this you know, it, I, there's not enough information to know what to make of this, but it could be just, a, you know, a company just... looking for a bridge because the IPO window is not open. So therefore you can't get the big later rounds. So therefore they were able to raise 25 million from Morgan health ventures. Um, Any thoughts on that, uh, Mike?
1: Um, That, that one's kind body and and the fertility space are uh, close to my heart. If you will, Uh, the masters that I did in health services research at Stanford medical school, actually was focused in the infertility space. Um, And it's been a fascinating space, space, both from a, you know, employer health benefits point of view to some degree a digital health. Um, you know, looking for the reasons for infertility point of view. The list goes on and on, and and, and of course also that um, you know the 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 margins can be fairly high uh, in part because there's a fair proportion of infertility procedures that happen on a cash pay basis. Um, and Kindbody, from what I remember, is one of the few you know digital health fertility companies that. Uh, is combo digital and brick and mortar. They actually have fertility clinics, um, and uh, so I don't know what the the round was specifically for, um, but I do think that th- there is a growing trend right now, and I've seen it across multiple therapeutic areas of, um, you know, both digital health, um, you know, virtual medical practice. Um, companies thinking about opening clinics in certain areas and kind of doubling down more locally and regionally and trying to achieve really significant share in revenue, uh, albeit not at a nationwide scale, instead of going nationwide and digital only. And then, of course, um, there are a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial and digitally minded, um, you know, provider group leads and system leads um, that have facilities that that want to start overlaying, you know, real digital health um, virtual medical practices onto their clinics. Um, and so so I anticipate over the next like five to ten years that you'll see a lot of investment in these businesses because to your point earlier, Steve, um, you know, most digital health companies that just have offices in San Francisco, you're right, they don't have real assets, quote unquote. Um, but it's pretty compelling when you can actually have the combo of a of a real grown-up digital health platform along with a clinic system um, and uh ostensibly also have pre-existing provider agreements, or at least relationships between the providers and the local insurance companies. And that, that's that been a big barrier for the virtual-only medical practices as uh, we've gone out and tried to get insurance contracts, especially ones that are not traditional fee-for-service provider agreements. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I,
0: there's a number
1: of VCs
0: um, have embraced this this hybrid care model, or also I've seen it called tech-enabled services. I've also seen it called alternate care delivery models. Um, so like Nancy Brown at Oak uh, and Lisa Sunin at, at Manat and, and several others, um, and they're investing in healthcare services companies that are technolo- technology-led or tech-enabled services companies. Um, and kind of the idea is that the healthcare buyer, who may be a doctor, for example, is so bad at running a small business and is so bad at buying technology and is so bad at implementing technology that how hard is it for the black turtlenecks to just start a medical practice and then go and eat the 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 the, uh, the white coats as lunch? Uh, and so that that's sort of a new bet that Silicon Valley is is making is that. Uh, it'll be able to fund these hybrid care companies. The downside is that what Silicon Valley really wants to do is invest in companies that have a software model and have high margin and that scale rapidly. Um, and they don't particularly want to invest in services, which often have low margins and scale slowly. And so this, this is somewhere in between this is um, you know, moving towards services and hopefully they wind up with a model that is more competitive than, than businesses run by doctors um, and that. Uh, uh, that is higher margin than plain old healthcare services, um, and that scales a little more rapidly than plain old healthcare services. So that's the bet with with hybrid care. Um, so then I'll mention so hearing startup, um, Timpa Health, based in London, raised a twenty three million dollar Series A um, to to expand further in the UK, also in Europe, also in the US. Led by Octopus Ventures, which I think is the most active London-based venture fund in digital health. It's probably by uh, Al Rabinovich over there. Um, other investors include Dara Capital, uh, Reza Yacht Investments, Bob Davis, who was I think was the founder of Lycos and a Highland Capital partner and a Boston uh, technology legend, uh, and Jeff Lierink, uh, the founder of Lierink Partners. I'm glad to see he's in the in the um, in the angel. Uh, business or the individual investor business uh, and that he wasn't hurt too badly by the wiping out of the equity of the of the shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank which acquired Leerink Um, and so and this company uses a smartphone for hearing health assessments among other things so this is interesting because this is almost a standard great investment except it's happening in Europe instead of in the U.S. and so we're still not seeing a return to lead investors in the U.S. leading. We're seeing uh, Octopus doing it in London, which is where you'd expect it to do it. Um, But, uh, you know, so, but uh, it's good to see this happening. It also shows how European companies have to be born with a U.S. strategy and here they are getting the money to go pursue that strategy. Um, But we're not, we're just not seeing, uh, you know, uh, lead U.S. investors jumping in the pool this past week. Uh, Any other thoughts, Mike? Um, No, I'll hold off on that one. I I trust you. (laughs) So then, last is uh, Arizona-based virtual care platform and telehealth company eVisit uh, acquired New York-based BlueStream Health, a virtual care management platform, giving eVisit a virtual front door. Terms were not disclosed. Um, eVisit CEO Sachin Agrawal um, led the acquisition. Um, the company was is backed by Goldman Sachs Asset Management's growth equity business. Um, so this is interesting to me because. In telehealth, for the last 10 plus years, we've seen entry into the sector, we've seen enormous entry into the sector. And now I think we're seeing maturation and consolidation in the sector. So each of these companies in the past would have wanted to grow on their own. But now, you know, we're actually seeing a decline in telehealth a little bit with the end of the pandemic, people going back to in-person visits. And so we could see a growing consolidation in telehealth, I think. Uh, Mike, any, any thoughts on that?
1: Um, I, well, I don't know the kind of classic telehealth market as well as you do, Steve, but I, in general, the trend holds true. And I think that there's a lot of other, um, let's call it, uh, core capabilities for lack of a better term that in the last, uh, you know, 10 years have been developed in so many different digital health companies. Like one that's near and dear to my heart is, you know, health coaching, um, you know, and, 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 and that's. Uh, was it Omada, Adverta, who I uh, helped lead for a while and at and so many other uh, companies. And um, for those on the call that are familiar with you know the digital health coaching model, there's a whole lot of complexity wrapped up in there around staffing models and training and hiring just in time and data enabling the coaches so that they're efficient and you can achieve a certain you know uh, a preferential um, coach to patient ratio, all of that. Um, and as I've advised and consulted companies and worked in some, um, you know, for the most part uh, these companies are kind of reinventing the wheel uh, all over the place on, on that. And so I think that's another point of potential consolidation um, in this type of environment is uh, rolling up some of those things, you know, from a technology standpoint, from a coaching staffing standpoint, um, and trying to achieve best practices to get the right unit economics for health coach enabled um, services.
0: That's great. So now we'll move to upcoming conferences. So here's where we uh, we talk about upcoming conferences and review them and say whether the you know, the whether the digital health CEO, or the digital health innovator and leader should attend them. So first I'll mention um, Bio, June 5th to 8th in Boston. Tickets are $3,500. They have a startup stadium there uh, where startups can participate. I, I, I would go to Bio. That is to say, so first of all, to understand Bio, Um, 95% of people who are there are there for molecules, not for bits. Um, So if you're there for bits, you're part of 5%. You have to find the other 5%. It still can be good, though. You can find investors who want to invest in software companies. You can find um, pharma innovation executives, pharma product managers and brand managers to talk to buyers, partners, other people. So it can be useful, but the whole conference is fundamentally about about molecules, not bits. Um, I would still go if I wanted to partner with pharma or sell to pharma um, or get an investment from a life science uh, uh, VC. Um, and so uh, at Startup Stadium, I would participate in that. They have a business forum, one-on-one par- partnering meetings. I would participate in that. Um, and so um, so that, that, that's my view on bio. Then there is... The Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit that's coming up at the same time it overlaps Boston June sixth to seventh. Um, Flair and Humana are the co-chairs. This conference focuses primarily on the healthcare services side of digital health, not on the life sciences part of digital health. So it's it is a, a different kind of it's a different part of healthcare than the Bio Conference. DHIS is an investor conference, whereas Bio is a trade show and uh, but. Uh, DHIS is an investor conference, so it's all about private investors meeting with private companies, some public investors meeting with public companies. Um, It's all about the the company's roadshow presentation uh, there. Flair and Humana are the co-chairs of the conference. Tickets are $1,500. There's early bird pricing until May 5th, which is just a few days from now. Um, This is a great way to meet All the East Coast VCs, basically, it's going to be heavily attended by VCs, East Coast and West Coast, but primarily East Coast. Uh, So it's a great place to go to, uh, you know, to sort of force things to happen and to efficiently meet people, maybe people you've already met by phone, but want to meet in person, maybe get meetings that were hard to get otherwise. Um, I'm a longtime attender of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Uh, I like it a lot. The programming is great, but you never go to the programming because you're too busy doing meetings. Um, this year I actually partnered with the conference and I got a discount code for our audience here. The discount code is in all caps, investor talk 10, no spaces or underscores, investor talk 10. That gets you a 10% discount code. Uh, and I, I as I say, I'll, I'll be there. I'm, I'm throwing a, a drinks night there. I hope you'll come. I hope to see you there. So, uh, if you are coming to Boston and bio for, uh, if you're coming to Boston for Bio and for DHIS, I'm hosting a drinks night um, for Investor Talk listeners, um, along with Xuan Gui, who's a friend of the show, who was just on the show the other week. Uh, and he's doing at the same event for his Health Disruptors crowd. It's going to be on the evening of June 5th. It's at a downtown Boston hotel to be determined and to register. If you are coming to Boston, you might as well register and go to this if you're going to be there June 5th. Uh, Go to my Eventbrite page, stephenwardell.eventbrite.com, and look for the June 5th event there. Okay, so, uh, Mike, uh, what what do you think of those conferences? Would you go to those conferences? Um, uh, And uh, are there any conferences you're going to go to and you recommend people go to?
1: Um, Yeah, good question. I think out of the ones that you mentioned, I'm just looking at the list that you'd sent me previously, probably the... um, Uh, One or both of the health conferences uh, and then uh, uh, DTX East. Um, And I think for me, uh, I'm not sure if I'll go this year. It depends on what, um, you know, uh, consulting engagements uh, I'm engaged with, um, along with some uh, consulting partners that I've been working with. But um, the other kind of categories of conferences that are relevant for the roles I played um, are kind of the insurer conferences and to some degree the employer conferences. So uh, AHIP on the insurer side is one example Um, Although it's so big and, uh, you know, you have to be very targeted in how you use it. Um, That's one example. And then, of course, like National Business Group on Health um, uh, on the employer side. That's great. Good. So, you know, moving on, uh, industry reports. Have any
0: reports come out in the last week that uh, were noteworthy that that, where uh, you think it's worth
1: telling the audience about? Uh, I looked through, look through my email and all that because you asked me to, but I didn't find anything from the last week. So I'm, I'm silent on that one. Sorry about it. Yep, me, me neither. Um, <laughs> and then, so personal notices.
0: So um, on Thursday, May 18th, I'm hosting my monthly drinks night series in Boston from 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel at MGHT Stop. We have uh, Danny Sands, the founder of the Society for Participatory Medicine. He's a doctor. He's going to be talking about About how about um, uh, the opportunities available for empowering patients and what and how empowered patients are changing medicine. Would love to have you come to sign up for that. Uh, Go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. That's May 18th. I'll also be at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit in Boston in June. Would love to meet with people from our audience who are headed to Boston for that. Um, And then, as I mentioned before, June 5th drinks night. during the bio and digital healthcare innovation summit in Boston with me and
1: and Xuen Gui would love to see you there as well. Um, Mike, any personal notices for you? Um, it's actually a bit of a quiet time unless any of you want to meet me at my 20th, uh, Stanford business school reunion next weekend. Uh, all quiet on my front.
0: That's great. So now moving into our main topic is, uh, selling to employers in, in, uh, 2023. Um, so, uh, I guess I like to start this off in general by just talking about um, the strength of the budget. And so here we're gonna talk about employers, but we're also gonna talk about the duality of employers and health plans who often like virtually the same product and who and that channel, someone who can sell to an employer can also sell to a health plan. And so when you think about this category and the care management solutions and other solutions, navigation, uh, there's also wellness. There's also telehealth. All the in there, is this a strong budget year on year? Are, are, do employers like these products? Are they going to be buying the same amount or more of them in future years, or or are, are they you know or are they losing faith in these products? What do you think about the the strength of the of the budget uh, in 2023 and 2024
1: as compared to recent years? Um, great questions. Um, uh, so I think, you know, from a budgetary point of view, I what I've learned, you know, from working with HR leads and benefits consultants and and so on and so forth over the last ten years is um, that for the most part, the likelihood of the, these budget line items, and I'll come back to that in a moment, um, you know, coming down significantly over time is actually relatively small. In part because Um, you know, for the most part, uh, there are good products and services out there. The vetting has been done reasonably well, either by the employers or the benefits consultants, or in some cases, the carriers as advisors to the employers. Um, And there's a a good amount of stickiness in a lot of these benefits. Um, I know there's been churn for, you know, some uh, of the larger players like Livongo, Amada, et cetera, but um, it's relatively hard for an employer to pull these things away from from their employees. So I don't uh, see you know, digital health and tools and care management and navigation, you know, disappearing or even having, you know, a massive downtick um, beyond what we've seen so far. Um, I do think, though, that um, just a little historical context, like in 2013, uh, when I started at Omada, um, you know, I think Welldoc and Blue Star was kind of out there selling to employers um, a little bit, but, you um, know, you know, uh, Sean Duffy and I and Adrian James at, at Omada, along with a couple other companies, kind of hatched this idea of what we called the, at that point the triangle model, um, which is basically, you know, one point of the triangle is the digital health company and at the next point is the employer. At the third point, um, there's the insurer. And, you know, what we discovered, of course, was that um, there's often pull through uh, in one direction or another. So, uh, I would go out and sell to, a let's say, a medium or a, sorry, a large size um, uh, ASO or administrative services only uh, employer. And they would like what Omada was doing. Um, and they would then turn around and, um, you know, do a contract directly with us, but also tell their carrier about us either to have the medical directors there vet us from a clinical uh, point of view or because they thought that the carrier might want to bring this to other uh, employers. So that was the employer pulling through the insurer. And then we would go do more work with that insurer. And by the same token, occasionally, uh, you know, we would go through the back door or the front door with a chief medical officer at a plan. um, And they would say, Hey, this could be great for either our fully insured or our ASO books of business on the employer side. Uh, So that would be, you know, the insurer pulling through the uh, employer in our direction. And I think one, one really important thing for the folks on the call to understand who, who, who don't already know this and most, most may, um, is from an employer point of view, there's basically two pools of money um, that are being spent on anything that looks like a digital uh, a, a digital care, like an Omada or Verta um, care management navigation. There's the ERISA Health Plan budget uh, for for you know the large companies, the ASO folks that um, that have an ERISA Health Plan structure uh, that receives tax protection uh, or exemptions from from the IRS, and then there's the uh, you know, it varies what it's called, but the health and wellness budget, where they do not get a tax break on it. And that traditionally, that's what employers have used on things like steps programs and cafeteria programs and things like that that don't qualify for um, the federal tax break um, on health related expenses for, uh, for employers. Um, and in general, um, employers use the ERISA health plan budget. Um, uh, to work with their insurance carrier partners um, to process payments. Um, and so what's happened in a lot of cases for that reason is um, as digital health companies have gone and sold to heads of HR, especially as those digital health solutions have become less health and wellness feeling and more healthcare medical provider feeling is that the employer said, well, that sounds like something that should be flowed through our ERISA health plan budget so therefore our carrier should do the contract instead of us. And oh, by the way, we get uh, you know, the tax exemption on it as a qualified health expense. Um, so a lot of the dollars that at least in the early days, like the first you know, three to seven years um, of, of, of this generation of digital health companies were being paid for directly by the uh, employer, now are kind of getting shuffled over to the, uh, to the carrier. Um, And that's also been accelerated in down markets like the one we're having right now, where, um, you know, the HR budgets are getting cut because it's not a a revenue center. um, And the HR teams have even less people to evaluate solutions, um, evaluate contracts and and put them through and then manage the contracts for value from a partner management point of view. Um, The response of the HR team, of course, in that situation is either to ask the benefits consultant that they're with to, do that work for them, or to um, outsource it to the carrier. So it's not—it's not that um, you know, if the direct-to-employer total budget writ large at the U.S. level has gone down or goes down, it's not necessarily because digital health is disappearing and it's—you know—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's on the outs. Um, my anticipation is that just a lot more of those dollars are moving over uh, to the insurance contracting side, which has its own problems, but um, it, it's not disappearing. So uh,
0: now imagine that you are um, the CEO of a digital health company in our audience who has begun the process of selling to employers or health plans, um, and they're finding it's tougher now than it was 10 years ago. A number of things have happened. There's been an arms race uh, in terms of how good you have to be. Um, employers are looking to to screen better, to to you know to, to have someone at, to inter- put an, an intermediary in there to vet um, possible vendors. Um, what is going on, um, and uh, uh, how do these companies get in the door with employers and and insurers? Um, and wh- how are those priorities changing? So there, there used to be a joke that sometimes employers liked sort of chronic care management. Other times they liked wellness, they would go back and forth. So there's there's definitely changing budgetary preferences. Um, How do you get in the door and and how are employers' tastes changing?
1: There's a lot in that question. Um, Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, So uh, a couple points in response and let's have a little bit of a a give and take on this. Um, You know, when I started this 10 years ago, there still were kind of... um, you know, vetters and gatekeepers, if you will. Largely, that was the benefits consultants like the Willis Towers Watsons and An Hewitts and, and, and Mercers of the world. Um, I, I think that the, because of what I mentioned, you know, that in down economies, HR teams are looking, you know, don't have as much staff to do evaluations and um, the tax exemption on the, on the um, ERISA side, but also because, you know, the early success of folks in, in our generation, uh, or, you know, moderate success in terms of selling direct to employer has led, of course, to uh, the recent explosion in VC funding of similar companies, um, <laughs> albeit with great products. And so you're what I've heard in the last several years, you know, as opposed to 2013 from my HR oriented friends is the number of, you know, outreach they get um, from what they now call kind of point solution companies um, is, is overwhelming. Like they literally just uh, think of it as spam, if you will. Um, so like the direct outreach piece, unless you can go through, you know, a networking exercise and through like a trusted uh, partner of the employer lead, um, you know, is very unlikely to, to be successful, um, in my opinion. So, and that's why in some of the companies that I've helped out recently, um, I've suggested that, you know, enterprise, digital growth marketing where you're trying to reach you know heads of HR, heads of health and benefits directly but impersonally um is really not where you know the CAC on that is just too high. Um, uh, so I think you know um all of that taken together uh means that you have to be incredibly targeted um with how you're getting in the door uh with these folks. Um and I think to some degree, it comes down to, you know, figuring out what the uh, the types of employers that are going to m- benefit most from your solution. So, for example, you know, all of the companies that have worked on sleep, whether it's, you know, CBT or a device um, uh, in the last several years, you know, there are certain sectors where that is going to have a much higher value proposition and maybe land uh, better from a uh, getting in the door point of view. So transportation would be one of those. Right around sleep, you don't want the the train operator falling asleep at the at the at, at the uh, at the stick. Um, and there's there's multiple examples of that. So being very targeted in the types of employers that you target, um, and from a sales and marketing point of view, um, like I just implied, I actually think it's much less about marketing. It's much more about sales, and it's much more of a you know consultative expert network strategy uh, where if you're out there trying to hire, hire your first salesperson um, who also may end up being your you know chief commercial officer or chief revenue officer, you want to find somebody who's not used to selling widgets um, to someone who has a line item for widgets. Um, it needs to be someone who has an excellent uh, Rolodex and can network their way um, you know, towards the appropriate person um by understanding exactly what you know that head of health and benefits is dealing with and that's the last thing that you asked about i think steve is what are they looking for um the my experience and and to some degree is just my experiences um you know the the, the heads of hr and to some degree the heads of health and benefits within the hr portfolio um pre pandemic Um, for the most part, the way that they figured out what new things they would invest in, especially directly, was they would ask their benefits consultants. And that conversation or that set of meetings with the benefits consultants um, would largely, uh, and oftentimes the uh, people from the carrier, the insurance carrier would be part of that, but it would be going through kind of top 10 lists of what are the clinical conditions or medical conditions that are costing you the most uh, and or had the biggest growth from the previous year and other kind of, you know, top five or 10 lists like that. And frankly, like if something wasn't on those lists, or it wasn't super sexy and new, um, it wouldn't be brought up in the conversation, the sexy and new stuff would be brought up because the benefits uh, consultant or the broker, you know, wants to keep the employer's business and be differentiated from the other brokers and benefits consultants, because it's not a, you know, super differentiated market. So if you're not one of those two things, if you're not on the top 10 list, and you're not really shiny and new in the eyes of the brokers, um, then you're not even going to be mentioned. You, won't, you wouldn't have even been mentioned. Um, and then it and happening. Um, so by the way, what
0: you're telling me about how it's changed it reminds me, I heard a joke about how it's changed over the last 10 years, which was that 10 years ago, the benefit leader at the progressive large employer was the guy at the high school dance with the thick glasses and unfashionable clothes who just stood in the corner the whole dance. Whereas today, that guy is the guy with the rich dad and the, and the, and the, and the, and the red sports car who everybody wants to, you know, get to know and, and very popular again. And, and that, that's what's happened to that role over time in part because VCs kept funding startups. that kept trying to prospect this person. Um, so it, it, it's harder to reach that person. Um, and then you, you talked about the top 10 list. I it, Here's, here's my own version of that top 10 list. Having seen a lot of, a lot of, uh, of work on this topic, you know, it, it sort of starts with diabetes and then, the greater metabolic issue, which is like prediabetes and weight management and then hypertension. And then you get into musculoskeletal um, and then behavioral health, health and mental health. And then interestingly, people are screaming about um, autoimmune drugs these days, those being um, uh, you know, causing a noticeable blip in, in costs for employers. And then after that, it starts to get rel- relatively smaller. Is that the same universe that you're
1: seeing or uh, are, are you seeing? And what
0: else are you seeing?
1: Um, let's see, I've just, I wrote down what you said, uh, and I think you're right. Those are, those typically are the top four, although, um, you know, mental health is an interesting one because from a, from a actual financial cost point of view, in most of those top 10 discussions, mental health is not there because what they're looking at is the carrier data on claims. And, you know, for the most part, because we haven't had a lot of new good branded antipsychotic medications introduced. Most of the you know, medications are pretty cheap and, and um, you know, therapy, unfortunately, is not highly utilized and in some cases is in a, is in a separate budget. Um, so mental health is one of those ones where it's not in the top 10 from a cost point of view, which actually has, um, to some degree, it delayed the, you know, the priority placed on mental health because it wasn't costing them that much until we got into the pandemic when it became you know, a, a, a big deal because it was just so front and center and visible. Um, but with that as a caveat, I, I think I agree with those. I think the, uh, the ones that I would add that I've heard of, cancer is definitely one of them. Um, and, you know, it, it dep- that one kind of depends how big the employer is and like what their recent exposure is to like a small number of very expensive cases. But it's a meaningful, I think, minority, large minority of employers where they've had enough of those, you know, million plus dollar um, uh, cancer oncology cases in the last year or two. Um, where that's front and center, um, uh, fertility. Uh, if fertility is part of the health benefit that the, the provider provide or sorry, the employer provides, um, then that actually tends to be um, relatively high as well.
0: That's great. Um, can you talk a little more about um, the role of benefit consultants um, and carriers? Um, just how imagine you're the CEO of digital health company. How, how do you early think about getting people on your side? It's all of its extra work to do. Who, who do you start talking to and how can they help you and how do you
1: persuade them to, to pick you and help you? Oh, man, where do I get started? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll drill down to that in just, uh, you know, 20 seconds. Um, the, the way I think about, you know, health, the he- I guess healthcare go-to-market and the, let's call it the payment ecosystem for healthcare writ large is that, you know, there are multiple decision makers, purchasers um, that influence the actual purchase uh, or, or that make the actual purchase, you know, in a gated fashion in some case, because like a doctor, a patient may ask for a therapy, which is part of the purchase decision. The provider or the doctor may then prescribe the therapy, also part of the actual purchase decision. Then the insurance company may prior off that you know so structurally part of the purchase decision and then on top of that there's the influencers right so there's the purchase decision maker thread and then there's the influencers um, and benefits consultants along with in a lot of cases you know insurance companies medical societies um you know to some degree key opinion leaders through the press all of those are influencers um, that are quite powerful, just because there's such asymmetry of information in healthcare, um, and you know the U.S. healthcare system has been designed that way. With uh, until recently, to some degree, and it still is, um, with you know physicians knowing everything, and you should just say yes to your physician whatever he or she says. Um, so that with that as like broad context, benefits consultants are one of those. Um, most of the big benefits consultants uh, have, you know, clinical people and even full clinical teams that work. Um, within them and actually vet solutions, um, and then of course they have uh, folks that do kind of the actuarial work to look at ROI and things like that. Um, uh, and then of course they have the account-facing people who work directly with, um, you know, with the employer HR team. Um, and so, I mean, in the companies that that I've been a part of, or at least some of them, and advise, um, we tactically we have hired. Um, Uh, at least one person who used to work at one of those benefits consultants um, to act as basically a channel, you know, sales and partner and management and relationship person. Um, And and part of that is, you know, so that we from the outside in can literally just navigate like who are the right people that we need to be talking to both to, um, you know, have them vet us and also then stay friendly to us as the product evolves and the data evolves and all of that. Um, and I guess the, the last important um, thing I, that, that I would say about the um, benefits consultants is that what you're really trying to do with the benefits consultants, well, I guess two things. Number one is, yes, you would love it if the benefits consultants um, you know, recommended you to one or all of their uh, employer clients. That's actually the second, ask, the second or aspirational target. The first thing that you're trying to do with a benefits consultant or a broker is to get them to not say no. Um, and, and by the way, this, this not say no thing is repeated elsewhere in healthcare around, like, um, you know, if you're a digital care provider um, who's doing uh, MSK, like, you know, virtual PT stuff like a hinge, um, you want uh, the orthopedist that your patient is working with to not say no to them using hinge at home as a part of their PT solution you know, that's the table stakes. You of course would want them to recommend Hinge, but first you gotta make sure that they don't say no. And it's the same thing with benefits consultants because anybody here who's gonna sell to employers, you need to be out there talking to employers ostensibly directly. And we can talk about why um, in a bit and how, but when you go talk to those first, you know, five, 10, 100 employers, most of them are gonna turn around if they like you at all. And they're gonna call their benefits consultant and say, have you heard of these guys or girls? And like, you know, do you think they're legit? Um, so you just want them to not say no in that scenario. And then insurers, can you talk about
0: how you, um, and, and, you know, should you be focused solely on employers, but talk to insurers anyway, or focus solely on insurers, um, or, and then, and still, or, you know, how, how do you, how do you think about selling to insurers?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I get gray hairs about thinking about selling to insurers. Um, no, uh, uh, seriously, though, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the shift in general, the trend has been from, you know, majority of the focus and the sales and the, to some degree, the revenues uh, on the employer side versus insurance to, you know, it's shifting. It has shifted the other way in the last 10 years. Obviously, there's still plenty of direct to employer contracts. And I don't think that's going to go away completely. Um, but I do think it's been shifting for the reasons that I talked about earlier. Um, when it comes to selling to insurers, um, you know, I think there's basically three ways you can do it. One is kind of the employer as a beachhead strategy. Um, and that is, you know, that you go find a small number of employers, hopefully a reasonable size, um, you know, probably 5,000 employees or above. Um, and there, there's about 5,000 employers in the U.S. that have, 5000 or more employees. So it's not a tiny pool. So if you go get one of those employers to sign up on a direct contract, and then you can, you know, you do good work with them, and you convince them to talk to their carrier about you, and introduce you to the their accounts lead or to the chief medical officer. That's the employer beachhead strategy. The second strategy would be actually doing kind of, you know, research, academic research projects, or, or you know, projects, um, that, that in theory are designed to validate your solution in any number of ways that we can talk about later, um, uh, but do so in uh, a more rigorous you know, uh, evidence-based way where it doesn't have to be a randomized controlled trial, but preferably something that's overseen by an institutional review board or IRB, um, that then you can actually uh, hopefully get it published in a peer-reviewed journal, um, but at the very least show some, um, you know, uh, health services research rigor around it and then get that to the chief medical officers group at a given insurance plan um, because they are looking for that level of rigor. So that's, that's kind of approach two. And then, you know, to some degree approach three is the, the, you know, strategic networking uh, sales type of approach that I was talking about earlier. Um, I I, I guess the, I guess the last thing I would say about insurance companies, um, and I'm sure most of the people on the call, uh, are familiar with this, but, but, um, for those that aren't, um, you know, insurance companies, the average one is big. It is Byzantine complex. Um, and it's hard to figure out who does what. Um, and that's especially true if you're looking for kind of innovative, uh, let's call them product categories, or you're thinking about disease, um, human disease in ways that aren't aligning with the traditional specialty structure of American medicine. Or if you're thinking about having a payment model that is not traditional uh, reimbursement coded fee for service, i.e., you know, a bundled payment or value based payment slash risk based payment. Um, The people at insurance companies who deal with value based payments and risk based payments uh, are in a completely separate group from the um, on uh, for the most part from the people that deal with, you know, traditional provider fee for service uh, contracting and credentialing and all of that. Um, so there's a lot of complexity there. And and it's like, you know, every plan is a snowflake in terms of those types of details. But at a very high level, there there's three groups within an insurer that you're going to have to sell if you're going to get a contract. Number one is uh, especially if you want to work with employers through them. Number one is medical, uh, usually overseen by the CMO. Number two is um, the uh, accounts or group. Um, business, which is the employer, but largely the employer businesses, fully insured and administrative services only, where the employer bears risk. And then the third one is the actuarial team, the CFO's organization that actually does the vetting on how this will affect their premium rates across different books of business.
0: So there's, there's more of our of our planned questions, but I just wanted to, to jump into some audience questions for a moment. We have John asking, uh, are you seeing a question of going for reimbursement codes instead of having employers or insurers cover as a benefit outside of CPT codes? Um, is
1: that is that related to the employer-to-insurer shift? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, the reason I'm pausing, John, is because Uh, I I think my answer is yes. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a sec. The answer is yes, but, um, the problem going on the code side is that unless a code already exists for what you're doing and the reimbursement levels for that code, uh, which are typically initially, um, you know, set, set by Medicare, um, and what's called the RUC, uh, after a new code is approved, um, Uh, unless there's an existing code for what you do that can actually make you money and and hopefully put you in the black instead of the red, it's a very long, complicated, and risky process to get new codes um, created kind of for what you do as an individual company slash individual new product category. And in fact, um, it's basically impossible to get um, a new code created for just one company, just one type of product, and that's of course because the folks at the AMA CPT editorial panel, which is the, the entity that you know, approves new code requests, um, they, they don't want to approve a code just for one company's product unless it's like literally, you know, revolutionary. So the exercise of getting a code is actually a work with your competitors uh, in Washington and in the halls of the medical societies type of exercise, as opposed to compete with your competitors. And that's why a lot of digital health companies are kind of late to the game or don't really understand this type of policy level work that needs to be uh, cooperative instead of competitive. Um, and that's one of the big structural barriers or system level barriers that I mentioned um, uh, earlier. With all that being said, I think in general, with um, the trend towards things like chronic care management code, so CMS and specifically the Center for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Innovation within CMS um, since whatever it was, you know, seven or eight years ago when Patrick Conway was running it, um, has been pretty progressive in terms of trying to introduce some new uh, code types, code sets um, that align with what some of us have done in this space. So There's the chronic care management code, CCM. um, Then came the remote patient uh, or remote physiological monitoring codes, RPM. Those have now been complemented last year, two years ago, with um, remote therapeutic management uh, code set. Um, but <laughs> there's still not nearly enough good codes and ways to have them. Um, the rates adjusted um, to fit what we all do in this community, such that um, it's a reliable thing for an investor to look at a CEO and say, um, "Yep, you know, you're going to be able to get to the black um, using existing code sets." So um, this whole area of uh, payment model um, at the broad level. Uh, you know, including value-based and bundled payment and risk, along with, you know, hopefully the, the faster evolution of fee-for-service code sets. Um, it is, it's maybe the biggest um, obstacle that we need to knock down to, to make this uh, thing sing and go from the millions to the billions, the, the M to the B uh, in the next 10 years. That's great. And also from our chat room, Baz is asking,
0: does D2C traction help with selling into an insurer? Um, Well, I'll just jump in myself. I was covering uh, uh, Fitbit uh, in the 2017 timeframe when they launched their corporate product. This is selling into the employer, not the insurer. Um, But the Fitbit brand definitely did help Fitbit and that product rapidly became Fitbit's second uh, largest line of revenue. Um, But just the, the Fitbit brand it, it, at that time, it, it was it was very positive with uh, consumers and employees. Employees liked it. The company liked they were bringing this sort of fitness message into a company that didn't have a fitness message and Fitbit was helping them that way. So D2C traction can be helpful this of course sold into the wellness budget at employers not into sort of the the care management budget at employers Um, but we'd love to get your thoughts today what does it look like for dc traction with with i've also heard it count the other way as well which is that a very picky benefit leader will say I have to give my employees something special they can't get anywhere else. Um, so the, the Fitbit value proposition was you had a $100 Fitbit device. It cost the employers 60 bucks, and the, employ- the employee would get perceived $100 value for this device um, and then be part of a corporate wellness program. Uh, but the employer... Didn't have to pay the full hundred bucks to give them that perceived value and then run the program. Um, but some uh, benefit leaders, buyers, decision makers will say, if anyone can get it, then I, I don't want to spend the extra time and effort to offer it to my employees. I only want to offer them something they can't get elsewhere. So, for example, I think you can't buy Lifongo and Verta um, for for diabetes on your own. You have to get them through an employer, and not all employers offer them. So, if you're if you're getting yours through your employer, it's not easy to Change employers and substitute and get the same uh, product. So, uh, but, but what, what's your thoughts on this question?
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, so Baz, it's, it's a it's a great question. <laughs> um, I'm pausing uh, in part uh, to reflect on what Steve said uh, about Fitbit, but also, you know, I'm I'm aware that um, in the, let's say in the last you know four to five years there has been a lot of VC investment in digital health solutions where when, when it comes to the go-to-market strategy discussion, especially if the VC is not, you know, steeped in the gory details of, you know, kind of traditional healthcare payment, um, they, you know, there, there's pressure. I, I've just seen there's, and maybe it's just me, but there, there's a lot of pressure placed on the CEO to um, have DTC either be the primary initial go-to-market strategy, or have it be a key—you know—one of the key options. And then the theory, of course, is, yeah, you you show that the market wants it, then of course, you know, employers and/or insurers will pay for it. Um, and uh, it's a nice thought, <laughs> um, but that I've seen there be a lot of issues with taking that approach. Number one is, you know, doing. DTC viral growth marketing um, you know, for these types of solutions is a fundamentally different skill set from building a go-to-market business around um, insurers, for sure, um, and even employers. Those, you know, doing a commercial organization for uh, employers and insurers is very, very different from a skill set point of view and to some degree, a culture point of view than building a real scalable viral DTC, DTC business. So that's a big challenge. Um, and then the other bit is... Um, you know, to Steve's point, uh, if you've got something that, you know, consumers like and they start to adopt, um, yeah, an employer might say that I want to make uh, um, in a good uh, labor market, like a, a seller's labor market where the employer is trying to find talent. You know, they might be willing to say, OK, I'm going to take on something that, you know, people seem to really be liking out in the consumer market and, and kind of identify my talent brand, if you will, as an employer with that um, to attract and retain good talent in a, in a recession or a closer recession, like we're in, you know, it's not, it's, it's a, you know, it's not a seller's market for labor. So um, that's less likely to happen. Um, And then I think the, the, the other bit around that is that, um, you know, from, from the ERISA point of view, going back to this employer tax exemption on qualified health expenses, um, you know, whether the, uh, the employer is paying for it directly and then putting it into that ERISA budget or more likely they ask their carrier to pay for it. Um, the IRS does not allow certain, only allow certain types of things to be flowed through that budget. And so you have to you know, figure out whether or not that type of device or service or whatever is actually going to qualify as an ERISA um, tax protected uh, um, health expense. So th- th- there's just a lot of blockages to it. Um, I think You know, DTC, if you want to call it that for the purposes of building initial data sets and like refining your product um, is a totally viable thing. But as a go to market beachhead and especially as like a go to market, um, you know, major channel over time at the billions of dollars level, uh, I it would be tough for me to envision too many companies actually building a billion dollar, you know, multi-billions DTC business, and then also multi-billions on the employer and insurer side. It's possible. But it's not
0: That's great. So re- returning to our original line of thought, um, can you just go more into detail about what does it take to go to market now and to, and to sell well into the employer and insurance
1: market now? Um yeah, let's see. Um what does it take? <laughs> um got to have a good product. Um now, uh th- like I mentioned, I think you know there's lots and lots of founders out there that have great products. Um you know, the second thing of course uh is having data. Um and I do think you know it's it, obviously everyone knows the the same that you have to have good data, you know, to sell products in the in the digital health or healthcare space, but Um, that's not a binary thing. It's not, you have good data or you don't. Um, you know, it's a spectrum, it's a gray area. Um, and, um, I I think one area of, uh, or, or, you know, capability in this space that has been severely underinvested in is evidence strategy, evidence generation, evidence syndication. Um, and, you know, folks like Evidation, um, and, and there's several other firms that are doing this, um, But I don't think there are enough, number one. Number two, um, I also think that on average, um, your average founder and or the average VC that's funding them is not actually either aware of or willing to invest in the robustness of evidence that's needed um, to go beyond getting a few pilots to being a billions of dollar business. Um, And we can go deep on that if you all want um, what's required. But at a high level. Um, you know, evidence strategy. It's not just do a bunch of studies that show that there's a clinical outcome. There has to be, you know, clinical evidence. There has to be engagement evidence, both initial and then ongoing, if it's any type of chronic thing. There has to be some level of, you know, quality of life and or satisfaction um, uh, research and outcomes shown. And then there's the health economics and actuarial piece. Um, And I'm saying both of those words intentionally because, uh, you know, those from the academic side will say, oh, you've got to do ha- a health economic analysis, which traditionally means a peer reviewed, randomized controlled trial, you know, that does cost benefit with utilities and stuff like that. Uh, but on average, if you're selling to an employer, and in a lot of cases selling to an insurer, they don't want to see cost benefit or cost utility analysis. They want to see actuarial impact, um, which is looking at, you know, a claims analysis of um, even if it's retrospective of a, um, an active group compared to a, um, you know, demographically and case controlled uh, matched cohort. So all, all that stuff that I just said, um, all of that is, is actually as key a capability as hiring your chief product officer and your head engineer and your head of design. Because when, like when I'm out selling as a chief commercial officer, I'm selling the product but then the next question, of course, is show me the data, both from a clinical point of view, but from an economic point of view. And the conversation goes nowhere if that data is not acceptable to the customer, especially on the insurance side, you know, where they, they traffic in data and they traffic in uh, actuarial analysis. So I think that's, that, that's a big one. Um, and and the, last, the, the last thing I'll say right now, and then we can kind of um, devolve into pieces of this, um, you know, what does it take to sell? Um, maybe a little kind of anecdotal story. Um, so I, I, at a high level, I believe there's, um, two products actually in most digital health companies. The first product is the one that most people found digital health companies to create. And it's the one that most people think of and are excited about, which is the product or the service that faces the patient. And everybody, a lot of companies put that product together. They have a great initial, you know, product market fit and prototype and they get some good data, on, you know, in those categories that I just mentioned back. And they're like, sweet, we've got this thing that, you know, has data and it's validated and now it's gonna, now we're going to scale it, right? And then and then they try and scale it. And of course, that's very challenging from a go-to-market point of view. And it's not just the initial sales bit. Um, you need to be able to scale, uh, you know, sales, marketing, account management, Uh, analytics, um, uh, care team coordination, if you're part of a care team that goes outside of the organization. So all these things that are kind of enterprise or B2B, and they're a little bit of the unsexy part that most founders didn't really think about or or get excited about when they jumped in. That's product number two, right? It's the the enterprise healthcare product. There's the patient-facing product, and then there's the enterprise healthcare product. Um, and 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 the thing is, like, as I've gone out and sold this stuff to employers and insurers, we get through the, the patient-facing product pitch, and they're like, "Great, this is cool." Like, um, so how are you going to work with us, right? And that's code for them saying, "What does your enterprise product look like?" Um, and it's analytics, it's IT infrastructure, it's um, you know, it's account management, it's customer support, which most companies don't think about until the last minute. All of this stuff. And you really have to, uh, sooner rather than later, um, hire actually a full product team and engineers that are dedicated to this stuff that know how to do claim submission and data science and customer support packages and things like that. Uh, so You've got to have that also, or else you're at best you're going to get a pilot and then not be able to, not, not be trusted to scale it. And at worst, not even get the pilot because the potential insurer customer will know to ask about that. And they won't like the answer. And I've also heard, you know,
0: maybe you have some pilot customers uh, and now you're trying to make a new sale and they'll say, well, you know, we have a lot of hourly workers. um, And so we want to see the actuarial results for a customer of yours who has a lot of hourly workers. And we have a lot of workers who are on their feet all day and not at a desk. And we want to see if your benefit is the same for people who are on their feet all day. And we have our workforce's you know, pr- mostly over fifty, and so we want to see the data for a workforce that's mostly over fifty. Um, and the, the demands are, uh, you know, and and uh, and in theory, perhaps your returns are different. Your your the ROI of your product is, it would be different with those different demographics I've described. Uh, and it, it, so it's it's very challenging to sort of to get it to match up once you get that anchor customer. You, you, if it does well for them, then you sort of want to sell it to other anchor customers who, who fit the same demographics
1: of employees, almost. So, yeah, it's. I mean, that's that uh, we we've always referred that, or we used to refer to that as you know the 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 snowflake conundrum, or the. Um, well, that's a, good, a reasonable estimate, right? You know, every every customer believes that their population is different. And so they need to have a pilot done in their population in order to validate that they should do a full rollout. Um, and that, you know, uh, to some degree, of course, as a, as a small company, you want to get from the phase which you're inevitably in in the beginning, where you are doing some pilots, almost at you know, I've never seen a company that literally goes to full national deployments with employers right from the start. But you want to get out of that phase as soon as possible and be able to have the leverage and also maybe to some degree the data where the, you can actually tell the employer, no, we don't do pilots. We, we do full rollouts or we, we at least do a minimum of regional rollouts um, within the U.S. Um, and part of getting to that point is having data, Steve. But to your point, like, you know, they will parse it down to like the, the craziest level. It's like, you know, the people who stand on their feet in the manufacturing facility versus, versus the people who sit in a chair at a high desk Versus the people who sit in a chair at a low desk, right? And and of course, you're never going to have that much data. And so it's really a combination of developing the right data, you know, as much data and being able to cut it in the right ways, um, but also having a consultative sales ideology and somebody who can really sell, um, you know, the data, but also the extrapolatability of the data. Um, for contiguous populations demographically or, you know, from a work job type point of view.
0: That's great. Uh, and so, you know, the next uh, just question is about market segmentation. Can you go into how to think about this market? Everyone's aware of thinking about ASO versus fully insured, but it's, it's more complex than that. Can you go into how, when, how uh, you know, how uh, a salesman
1: would think about uh, segmenting the market? Um, yeah, so there's, um, there's a lot of ways to do this, um, in, in the kind of, you know, digital health sales world, it's not quite as simple as it is, or at least in my experience, it's not as simple as it is in like the enterprise SaaS software world. Um, you know, where it's, you've got kind of like enterprise and SMB and it's as simple as that. And I know it's not as simple as that, but, um, there, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. Um, especially because, and the reason it's more complicated is because um, payment for healthcare is so complex. There's different types of insurance products that are aligned with different types and sizes of employers. Um, And then of course, you know, you have different types of digital health products that may be better or worse um, for different, uh, you know, employee uh, populations. Um, I wrote down a couple um, in this area. So on the employer side, if you I'll just say them in terms of like dimensions. Um, and then, you know, if, if you actually want to get down to like, what's the right model for a given solution, that tends to be a pretty like bespoke exercise that takes a little while. Um, so some of the dimensions are for employers are, are they uh, administrative services only or ASO or are they fully insured? And uh, for those who don't know, um, when a when an employer is um, fully insured, um, they're working with an insurance company not only to, um, you know, bring them uh, networks of doctors that their employees can see, and also process the claims that come in from those doctors. But the insurance company also bears the financial risk uh, above the level of the premiums that the employers pay for really expensive medical care. Uh, so if there's you know multi million dollar cancer cases, then the insurance company would pay for those. Um, above and beyond the premiums um, for the fully insured employer client and the employer wouldn't pay more. Administrative services only is for, usually for larger companies, although the threshold has really come down. On average, most companies out there uh, are uh, who have 50 or more employees these days are self-insured with some big exceptions, of course. Um, but ASO um, uh, employers, it's administrative services only because the insurance carrier is doing the administrative stuff only, which is processing of claims and uh, provision of provider networks and, and customer support and all that kind of administrative stuff. But the employer um, basically pays all of the healthcare bills beyond the employee contribution. Um, So they would be paying for the, you know, the multimillion dollar um, cancer cases. And so uh, with that as context, one reason why that distinction matters is because, um, you know, if the um, if the employer who is paying for the downside risk on healthcare expenses, they're going to think a little bit differently about certain types of solutions, um, like a cancer oriented uh, digital health solution um, than a fully insured client might. Um, and, and uh, the, the other thing that I would say about that is it tees up the second dimension, um, which is what is the average employee tenure uh, of the, you know, the, the employer that you're talking to uh, or the sector, right? So the average employee tenure in the U.S. Uh, last I checked about a year ago was 4.6 years. So average person in the U.S. stays at their employer for 4.6 years. The range, of course, is crazy wide, right? Like, Steve, like you were talking about, you know, uh, retail uh, with month, you know, with with uh, seasonal employees uh, and even hourly employees, you know, huge amount of turnover. So their average is like down below a year, uh, or maybe a bit over a year. Whereas, um, you know, some others is like uh, up into the double digits. And of course, for chronic conditions, you know, the retailing companies uh, in the U.S. they don't. When you think about it unfortunately they don't have much of an incentive to pay for diabetes prevention for somebody who won't be on their payrolls six months from now or 12 months from now whereas somebody who has them for 10 years and maybe they have an aging population in place as an employee base they have a huge incentive to do that Um, so looking at bureau of labor statistics data at the sector level which is available publicly is a great way to continue to hone the types of employers that you're calling on Um, Size of employees uh, is an obvious one. Geographic scope is another one, actually. Um, You know, are they, uh, and and this also depends on where you license to practice medicine or whatever you're practicing, if that's a a thing for your um, product model or service model. Um, But beyond, uh, you know, where you're kind of licensed, there's also the question of, you know, are you, um, do you want to actually serve a national employer right off the bat? With all the implications of that for the hours that you keep customer support for, um, and the degree to which you might have to go on site sometimes to do service or to actually see patients or members or employees, um, progressive versus not is another dimension. Um, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and, and chief commercial officers actually talk about you know is it a progressive employer, um, and that basically means is there evidence that they have you know spent money on and and hopefully stuck with. Some, you know, digital health interventions to some degree that's visible from the outside in. Like if you go to your competitors or other analogous companies they'll sometimes have logos on their website, occasionally you'll be able to do web searching to find, you know, employee health benefits that are offered. So there you can have somebody I've actually had like mechanical Turk with Amazon go through and do that for me, you know, basically find employers out there that have certain types of progressive health solutions in place. Um, and then the last one, uh, and it's linked to that is, do they have direct contracts with, you know, small companies, d- uh, digital health companies, or do they work with them only through their carrier, right? In which case, eh, you know, you, you shouldn't expect to have the contract directly with the employer at the very least, and you might ne- not even want to call on the employer because they're probably going to push you towards the carrier anyway. So that's the employer side on segmentation. And then uh,
0: the the obvious lesson there is target the progressive employer, not the conservative employer, and also the ones who contract directly who want to work with those you want to try to prospect those employers. and you can get that list by looking at like the you know the the website of the National Business Group on Health or the website of the employer health industry. Health Innovation Roundtable, or the or the Pacific Business Group on Health, and all those members who are paying subscription dues to those industry associations are presumably progressive large employers, wouldn't they be? Is is, is that a good
1: source to look to for that? Um, I think that's a good source to look to for that. I actually, if you don't mind, I I would take a tiny bit of exception on the point of um, going after the the kind of like known progressive employers, Uh, unless you have something that's Uh like really really different, and that's because. Those employers are the ones that already have a lot of staff that are managing various you know, digital health company partners, and, and they might not have the bandwidth to do more. And so to some degree, this is one where you want to you try and find the companies that are in between the like really progressive and already have their dance card full, and the ones who are, who are so conservative that they would never, ever consider it. There's, there, there's companies in the middle, and hopefully they're the ones where your solution fits there, like the transportation for sleep thing that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, that, that where it kind of fits the bill. Um, and I also think another vector you, you brought to mind or another way to think about it is also about what is the, the growth trajectory of the company from a revenue and profit point of view? Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, so, so, um, obviously, if, if they're growing quickly, uh, A, it means they may have extra cash available in their, in their income statement um, pro formas to, to pay for something new. And of course, they also may be in a more competitive labor market where they want to provide perks to attract top labor and retain it. Um, And so when you take all these dimensions that I mentioned, to some degree, it's a multidimensional problem, right? Where you want to, you actually, as a smart analytical like or CEO, you want to take all these dimensions and you want to try and find, you know, companies that, that are optimized across as many of those factors as possible and make the short list of you know, ten to fifty, um, and only call on them, and that's how you you can avoid hire, You know, hiring a big sales team is better analytics and better strategic thinking along these multiple dimensions at once upfront.
0: That, that's great, and for our audience, now is the time to get your your last questions into the chat room, um, and then uh, uh, Mike, can you go into like insurers, how to think about insurers?
1: Um, yeah, uh, so insurers, um, I mean, there's about, depending on how you count it, there's about th- 250, 300 insurers of any, you know, kind of like reasonable size in the U S. Um, and if you, you know, it's very consolidated, uh, there's the big five or six, depending on how you count them and then Medicare, of course. Um, so th- there's a, there's a good level of consolidation. Um, uh, the one thing to be really clear about is, um, on average, uh, the frontline salesperson, the field salesperson who is going to be effective at selling to employers, um, uh, you know, in a in a um, kind of energetic way uh, with high returns um, is likely not the same profile as the person or people that you need to go sell successfully to insurers. It's just a different capability set and different background, right? The The HR side with employers, um, there's plenty of analytical people, but there's also a lot of folks who lead HR groups, you know, where um, it's a bit more of like an emotional and also, um, you know, cultural fit type of sell. Um, Whereas on the insurance side, like I mentioned, you have actuaries, you have medical people, and then you, and then you have the people that sell to employers. That's where the overlap is. But like the actuary side and the medical side, like finding somebody who's below a C-level that can sell successfully across all those different parts within those two different categories, really, really hard. So if you're hiring out both sides, you're going to need to hire some employer, you know, at least somebody to do employer and somebody to do insurer. Um, for insurer, I think it uh, there, there's a couple dimensions, like I mentioned earlier, same thing, not as many. Um, number one is, you know, what's their geographic scope? So there's a large nationals like Aetna and Cigna and, and, and the gang. Um, and then there's, you know, the state level blues, uh, and, and some of them are, you know, regional, um, and then there's some non, non blue cross, blue shield state level plans. Um, and then there's some like hyper local, uh, plans as well that just operate, you know, in a region or in a, a few counties or even in a large metro area. Um, and to some degree, um, you know, selling to those uh it, it, it's not totally linear, but like it's a lot slower to sell to a really large national plan than to a smaller local plan, uh, not surprisingly. Um and then there's the uh, the other category is the integrated delivery networks where uh um well and actually categorically there's insurance companies that have captive providers um and IDN like Kaiser who just acquired Geisinger will um Um, You know, they're fully integrated networks, but then there's also a lot of um, insurers who have recently started acquiring um, provider groups. A lot of the large ones have, you know, captive provider groups um, under their umbrella. Um, And then there's some that are just traditional insurance. They don't employ providers. And actually, when you're going out in these companies, when you're going out and selling to insurers and you're in an early stage where you want to develop data um, and have slightly less um, roadblocks from a go-to-market revenue point of view, finding insurers that actually have captive providers um, that are aligned with your product, whatever you're doing, is a great move because then you don't have to go sell twice, right? You can sell to the insurer for the payment, but then you can also work with that insurer to have the providers, the relevant providers that are under their umbrella, work with you from a, you know, whatever it is, a referral sourcing point of view, and then also from a care point of view, if that's what you're doing. Um, and then and then the last thing on insurers are just the same dimension around progressive uh, versus conservative. Um, and you can kind of do the same research to, to figure that out.
0: That's great. I, I heard a story. This is from a few years ago about the difference between um, provider organizations that are independent versus those that are owned by insurance companies um the most famous example of which is Kaiser Permanente um, but so we don't email our doctors today we still don't email our doctors uh, and uh if you if you tried to get your doctor to email with you, you you'd run into all sorts of objections doctors would say well, you know, you're, it takes me time to email, but I can't bill to email or I'll be liable uh, for what I say in an email. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. And so therefore I'm reluctant to email. Um, and so that, that's the problem you get with maybe maybe as a patient, you want to email with your doctor, but uh, your doctor is not going to email with you for these reasons. And this has been going on for since, since email began. Um, but over on the, the Kaiser Permanente side, uh, if Kaiser wants doctors to email, they just say, "Don't come to work tomorrow if you are not going to email with patients." Um, and then the doctors all change like this. Uh, so it, it, the the organizations can behave very differently from each other depending on on who owns them. Um, so um, let's see. the uh, so with that, um, what what I'll, so for time reasons, we should wind up. but Mike, any other thoughts, just in general to summarize, you know if, uh, so we we had, you know, this market's evolved a lot over 10 years. Um, it was going great before the pandemic. Then the pandemic, uh, you know, up upended a lot of stuff, changed a lot of the priorities of, of the of the progressive uh, 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 benefits leaders. Um, and now we're post-pandemic, but we might be going into a recession. Any thoughts on the overall mood of the market and what direction it's going um, and other concluding thoughts?
1: Um, I guess... Yeah. I th- I, so, Steve, I think, um, you know, your comment that things were kind of going great before the, the pandemic. I, I agree with that, but I also think that was kind of like stage dependent. Um, you know, before the pandemic, it was, you know, whatever, six, seven years into this. Um, and I think it felt like we were going well because, you know, we, we, we had a couple of exits and, you know, there were some companies with tens of millions, maybe into the very low hundreds of millions in revenue, Um, You know, which seemed like a good growth curve. But I think I mean, in some ways, I think even if the pandemic hadn't happened, um, I think that we might have seen a real slowdown on this. And it's because that was kind of also right around the point when all these systemic issues that I mentioned earlier, um, obstacles, whether it's because of perverse incentives or just not not kind of knowing how to do it, Uh, would have gotten in the way of, you know, going from the M to the B, from millions to billions um, and actually scaling the enterprise product um, out to the level that we all uh, imagine. So I think that would have happened um, inevitably. Um, And so, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I think you're right that what you said in the beginning, that the pandemic was helpful in a lot of regards. Um, And I think now the question is, Um, you know, do we have the people in place um, whether, you know, whether it's in the companies, the small companies themselves or in the investors but also um, you know, in the broader ecosystem uh, um, to stop thinking in silos number one and stop thinking in self-interested kind of ways from from within those silos and start talking about things like you know, what is the next stage of data interoperability standards that can support Um, you know, uh, personalized, um, maybe even AI-driven, you know, uh, provider support for patient interactions. And, you know, what is the, how do we actually solve this problem of, you know, uh, aside from the capitated environment that Kaiser represents, um, you know, in a fee-for-service environment, how can we provide the proper incentives for doctors and patients to interact with each other over email or chat asynchronously and digitally, when that actually is going to be either more efficient or more effective. Right. So, so there's, um, I don't know, there's, there's some higher system level thinking and kind of like skating to where the puck is going. And like when I, when I've been doing consulting lately, it's, um, you know, the one thing I kind of like ask my clients to take on faith is like, I, I don't want to work with them if all they're interested in is the next like year or two, we need to be like crafting strategies that say, okay, Five years from now or 10 years from now, what does this look like if we do it right at that system level? And yes, we'll do I'll help you with, you know, strategies and tactics at the company level. But I want to do that after we or as we also agree on, you know, what does that company strategy um, prepare you for if we assume success at that systemic level that takes, you know, the M to the B.
0: That's great. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, so you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk uh, with your host, Steve Wardell, and many thanks to our guest today, Mike Payne. Um, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stevenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at uh, where my handle is at Stephen Wardell, to get notice of upcoming talks. Um, we'll see you next time on Thursday, May 11th for What's Hot in Pharmatech? What are the big pain points in pharma and how can tech fix them with Jeremy Sohn? Jeremy is the managing partner at P74 Ventures and a former global head of digital licensing and investments at Novartis. And for our Boston and Massachusetts audience, our our next monthly digital health investor talk uh, drinks night is Thursday, May 18th, um, uh, uh, 530 to 830 in the lobby bar at the Liberty Hotel. Um, Thanks very much. uh, And I'm signing off. And thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks, everyone. Take care.